I'm expecting it to take us approximately three years to finish. No, I'm not like some of your connection leaders. I'm not going to take that long. But I am going to take three years. And what we're going to do is a, it's a 40-part series. We're going to do 14 this fall, 13 the next fall, and then 13 in 2018. So I guess my contract here at the church will run at least through 2018. So anyway, uh, but I, I do want to hope you'll, uh, the Lord will bless you in our journey through this. I, I'm very excited about it. It's, uh, of course, I think many of you would agree with me. It's, it's the, my favorite book in the Bible. I mean, I, I love uh, the book of Romans. And today is part one of 40. And of course, we've got to begin with the introduction to the invitation. Now, today is going to be primarily more of a Bible study. And my goal is basically to give you a flyover of the book of Romans, but also cover the first seven verses. That's our goal. That's our attempt here this morning. Now, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 3. I know we're going to look at chapter 1, but turn to 3 right now, if you will. Now, the book of Romans has been called several things, many things. The Gospel of Paul, the textbook of correct Christian theology, the commentary of the Gospel, the Christian Manifesto, the Christian Constitution, the Guide for Victorious Living, the Map to the Road to Salvation, the Glorious Account of God's Grace, or the Transformation Book. But taken at face value, it is plainly a letter to believers. And so look at the introduction on your outline. We have been given what many people call the greatest letter ever written. The Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Romans around 56 AD. In its entirety, literally, it is a royal invitation, an invitation to move from our guilt by way of his grace for his glory. Now, why would we call it a royal invitation? I think primarily because really the whole book themes around an invitation. If you look at Romans 10, 13, it says, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's one of them easy verses we memorize as children. But, but really, simplistically, that is it. It's a royal invitation to come to salvation, to come to the Lord Jesus. So there's several things I want us to do, as any introduction would do. Look on your outline. First of all, I want us to look at the letter's purpose. It's purpose. Well, first of all, it teaches the fundamental doctrine of salvation. If you were to say, okay, give me the doctrine of salvation, the best way, the most complete way that I can have it, it would be the book of Romans. Now, there's several things that we're going to do. This is how we're going to break this book down. It's really going to be broken down into three sections. And the first is what we would call guilt or perversion. And we find this in chapters 1 through 3. It, the whole thing really culminates. If you were to say, okay, how does this thing going to end? How's it going to wrap that section up of our guilt and our perversion? It ends with Romans 3, if you will. Look at verse 19. And it says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Now let me just say this, if you don't know it, we're all guilty before God apart from Jesus Christ. That means this, two types of people in this room. Those who are currently guilty before God are those who have found grace in the place of their guilt. 
That's the only two people in this room. And it's kind of interesting. So, so he goes on in verse 20. He says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. If you, what this is saying is this. There's clearly a record of, of our guilt. The record of our guilt is held to the standard that God has set forth. And the standard that he set forth is found in the Old Testament when we see the law. And none of us, none of us are righteous before God based on that law. The law proves, the law was put in place to show us our guilt before a holy God. And that's what chapters 1, 2, and 3 are going to show us and demonstrate to us. Next, look on your outline. We move from guilt to grace. And that's the propitiation. And we see that in chapters 3 through 11. It really, it, it culminates at, at its beginning. It kind of lays out the groundwork to how this is going to look. So look at Romans chapter 3, look at verse 23. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's recapping where we find ourselves in our guilt. But then verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation means God's wrath is satisfied. How is it satisfied? Through the shedding of blood of Jesus Christ. Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's what that means. And so here we're introduced to the grace, the propitiation. And then it says, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. That means this, if we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, as I say so many times, we come to God through Jesus on his terms. When we do that, that means our sins uh, are not overlooked because they were placed on Jesus. That came at a high price. But guess what? It's no, those sins are no longer held against us. That's what the gospel of Romans, or literally what Romans is trying to tell us. Next, we move from guilt to grace for his glory, for his glory. We find this in chapters 12 through 16. And really, if you were to look at chapters 12 through 16, it's the whole idea of God's provision and, and the practical application of what's been demonstrated to us. It literally culminates in Romans chapter 12, again, where it begins. He says, I beseech you, brethren, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And here it is right here. That you may prove... What is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. That phrase that you may prove. I don't know about you, but I've all, I've, I, I know these verses. I've known these verses for many, many years. I've preached on these verses before. But that phrase that you may prove, do you know what that literally is talking about? It's talking about practically living out the faith that was given to us. How we practically live it out. Chapters 12 through 16 will show us what that should look like. It shows you the evidence of the fact that we have gone from our guilt to his grace for his glory. And it's going to show us that. And we see that through this book. Now, someone has said this. Listen to the statement. It's so true for this day. There is a growing trend in the church that appears good on the surface Yet it, is deceptively, it, yet it deceptively weakens believers. 
the church is trading in the fundamental truth that the saving message of Christ is our deepest need for a self-help Christianity. Y'all, not all, but a lot of the books written today in the name of Christianity are nothing more than Christianity self-help books. Now, some of you may be sitting there saying, what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that on the surface, but that's the problem. It's just the surface. You see, the greatest need that we have is where the gospel hits us. It's the greatest need that we have is that we need to move from our guilt to his grace and find out who we are, as Paul says it, in Christ, what that means to be in Christ. And so, so really, if you look at a lot of what's going on, what's being said from the pulpits across America, what, the books, some of the best-selling books that you see out there, it comes up short. Christianity is much more than self-help. Listen to this. This false gospel is focused more on comfort, status, accomplishments, and self-improvement than the true life-giving gospel. The bottom line is this. We are solving surface problems in our own strength, and many, many are doing a fairly good job at it, while ignoring the only answer to our deepest need, Jesus Christ and his transforming salvation. That is the need that, that we have. Now, can we come back? Can we have the foundation of the fact that we've been moved from our guilt to his grace and we're living for his glory? Can there be those things that come about that help us, that demonstrate how we should live? Romans does a good job of that. But let God's word speak for God's word. That's where we are amiss. Next, the letter's purpose. It explains, look at the, the second point there. It explains the unbelief of Israel and God's faithfulness. This is actually detailed in Romans 9 through 11. So if you want to read ahead or whatever, you can study those three chapters. But, but the gospel, excuse me, the, the letter to the Romans addresses that. Next, it gives practical instructions in Christian living. living. And we see that in Romans 12 through 16. Now, what is it going to do? We're going to see this much later uh, down the road. It outlines the motivational gifts. It details Christian behavior and attitude. It outlines our relationship with government and each other. Now, some of you are saying, maybe we need that now. Well, we'll get to it, okay? We're going to need it then too, all right? Now, not only do I want you to see the letter's purpose, but I want you to see its uniqueness. There's something unique about this book or this letter. First of all, it summarizes all Christian doctrine, every bit of it. Listen to this. Many agree that if you lost the whole Bible and only had the letter to the Romans, you would have a complete work of Christian doctrine. And it's true if you've ever studied it. It's all right there. You find it. It's right there. Paul does a wonderful job, a miraculous job in writing this. Of course, we know he was led by the Holy Spirit himself. Now, John Calvin said this concerning Romans. Look here at this quote. When one gains a knowledge of this letter, they have an entrance open to them to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. Now, the letter to the Romans, because of its doctrinal, doctrinal articulation, unfolds the mystery of Jesus' provision and our salvation. Literally, what you're going to read as you study this letter is the book is literally going to unfold, unfold to reveal much of the mystery is associated to our salvation. Next, its uniqueness. It ties the gospel message to the Old Testament. You see, it quotes Paul in this letter, 
quotes the Old Testament more than all of his other writings combined. That tells you a lot, doesn't it? Now, it is the longest, it's one of the longest, apart from Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, it's one of the longest you're fine. But what's interesting is, is, is this letter, all of them combined, Old Testament references are found right here. Now, if you were witnessing to a person of Jewish faith, the gospel of Matthew and the letter to the Romans would be the greatest information to lead them to Christ. Why Romans? Because Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. He was taking the Old Testament, all the prophecies, as many as he could. He was filling his gospel with saying, here, see, the Messiah is this Jesus. But then Romans carries it a step further. It goes back and says, hey, this is where the Jewish faith, the, the people of Jewish faith missed it. This is what, what blinded them to it. And, and I'm here to let you know that you, you're still not too late, basically. And that's what the emphasis of Romans appears to be. Next, look on your outline. It's writer. The writer of this letter is Paul, of course. Uh, you don't have much debate about that when it comes to uh, commentators and scholars. Most agree that Paul wrote this. Now, isn't it interesting that the one who persecuted the church, you remember him, right? Saul, before he became Paul. Isn't it interesting that he will put together what many would call the Christian manifesto, the letter to the Romans. The one who went from trying to destroy the Christian faith is now transformed from the guilt that he was under to the grace that he received for God's glory. You see, the very person who wrote this letter is the one in which you could see it all play out. He was the Jew that totally missed it. He was the one who, who was there, who was deceived by all the things that were around. And God did a great work in his life. So there's several things I want you to see about the writer. He says it about himself. Look on your outline. He says, a bondservant. It literally means slave. Now think about this. Paul had many credentials. Let me tell you his credentials based on what he says about him. If you write these verses down, Philippians chapter 5, 6, 7, uh, Philippians, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verses 5, 7, and 8. Here's what Paul said about his credentials. This is what he said about himself before Christ. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee. Now, let me just tell you about the Jews in that setting and, and what Jews have primarily thought. The Jews, we, we know, based on God's word, are God's chosen people. You can't deny it, can you? He, 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 they were God's chosen people. They saw, apart from any, that they worshiped the true and living God. And so the one who wrote the letter to the Romans was someone who understood God in the context of the Old Testament. And he's basically telling us, hey, if it could be done for God, I was doing it. At least the way he interpreted it. But then he goes on and he says, but something changed. But what things were gained to me, these credentials that I held, these I've counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. But is he sad about it? No, he says this, and count them as rubbish. 
I would give you the real translation for the word rubbish, but I won't do that <laughs> this morning, okay? But go study it for yourself. There's your homework, okay? I count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. All his credentials, which would have meant a lot to someone. If you were to assign Paul's credentials to any person of Jewish faith, they would have been very proud to hold those credentials. He's saying they're rubbish. I'll go ahead and give you the definition. They're dung. For us here in the South, manure. Manure. <laughs> so look at Romans chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Some of your translations just say servant. Some say slave. You see, this was his favorite title if you go through and study the letters. That he was a slave to Christ. That he was a bondservant. His favorite title. You know why? Because it's a picture of lack of self-will, self-fulfillment, and self-satisfaction. And let me tell you this. That's where Paul was headed with everything before he came to know Christ. It was all about self-will. It was all about self-accomplishment. It was all about self-satisfaction. That was who he was. But he says, no more. Now I'm a bondservant. You see, when Jesus confronted Paul for the first time on the road to Damascus, Paul asked two profound questions which encapsulates the meaning of bondservant. And by the way, let me tell you what bondservant does mean. It, it literally means purchased servant. Someone who was purchased. A servant. Let me, let me ask you a question or let me fill you in on something. Did you know when you came to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior... That he bought you, he bought you by his own blood. He redeemed you. It literally means to buy back or to purchase. And, and so, what, so here, here's what you need to understand. There were two questions Paul asked which encapsulates the meaning of bondservant. The first question he asked was this. Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? That, that's the whole implication that he's bound to the master. And then the second question was this, what do you want me to do? It means that he was bound to the wishes of the master. That's literally, so if you were to say, give me the, encapsulate with me the whole meaning of bondservant. Who are you, Lord? And what do you want me to do? It's basically the whole idea of signing up. <laughs> Next, he's, he calls himself, this person is an apostle, which means sent out. In Romans chapter 1, he says, not only is he a bondservant, but he's called to be an apostle. Now, the two descriptions here in verse 1, the first being bondservant. Literally, if you were to say, okay, let's understand the context of bondservant. Here's what it literally means. In some ways, it means that Paul signed up for it. It's the whole idea of surrender. It was his own, it's kind of his own doing to surrender to that. But apostle means God signed him up. Okay, because God is doing the sending. He's doing the doing in this. So one of them speaks of his surrender, and the other word speaks of the fact that he was sent by God himself. Now, in Acts chapter 26, Paul was standing before Agrippa II, giving his testimony. Listen to what he said. In Acts chapter 26, look here on the screen. He says, so I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I've appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. 
I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. Okay? It goes on. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sin and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Right here, when Paul's given his testimony, he's basically saying what God asked him to do. He's basically saying what God is sending him to do. So we see that he's an apostle. Next, Paul not only describes himself as a bondservant or an apostle, but he also describes himself, and you may not see this on the surface, but he says this, as a marked man. It means he was set apart. In Romans chapter 1, the latter part, he says this, he was someone who was separated to the gospel of God. The idea of being separated to is the idea of being marked. You're being marked for a specific purpose as it relates in this context. So in the Old Testament, the idea of being separated to implied something that was holy or something that was undefiled or something that could be used because it was undefiled. Okay, so that's what the terminology means. Only those who were holy and undefiled, listen, could be separated out for use in the Old Testament as it related to what the priests did. Okay? So they, what did they have to be? They had to be separated out for use. They had to be undefiled. Paul, in his letter to Timothy, listen, encouraged Timothy to be separated from those things that could defile him to those things where he could be useful for the kingdom. Now think of this. Every Christian is a marked person. Now let me say this. I don't believe, this is just me, you may disagree, and that's fine. We can agree to disagree on this one. I don't believe there's modern day apostles. That's me. I think it came and went with those 12 men. That, that's where I am. They were sent out. There was, there was, a, there was something placed on their life that they were sent out to do that only they could do. I mean, I, I believe that. But here's the other side of it. And, and really, if you look at it, we've all been sent out. So it's like you got the office of the apostle, okay? It's like, how many of you agree that we're all called to be servants of Christ? But then we've got the whole idea of the office of, of deacon, which is outlined in Scripture. I think the same thing occurred there with the apostles. We're all expected to be sent out. We're all ambassadors of Christ, which is really what the word means. But there were those who held the office. There were those who had the special giftings. And so you have that. Every Christian, if you really look at it, is a marked person separated for use in the kingdom, in this case, for spreading the gospel. Next, we see the letter subject, and that's Jesus. There's three descriptions that we find about Jesus here. First of all, he's the promised one. In Romans chapter 1, look at verse 1 again. He says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, God was, you know what these verses are saying? God was and is the author of the gospel. How many of you know that? It's not something, the gospel is not something that it just kind of came about. There was a plan to get there. It started all the way back in Genesis. Did you know that? In Genesis, I mean, the, the promise of him in, in Genesis 3. And so that whole idea, God's plan for the gospel has always been consistent. The New Testament is not a revised plan. Did you know there's people out there who will tell you that? 
that the Old Testament is one way in which God was going, and he, he decided to move from law to grace, and so he went a whole different way. No, the whole plan was the plan. It wasn't two plans. There, were, there was the plan. Now, the New Testament is not a revised plan. Here's why. There are over 330 Old Testament references to the Messiah or Jesus' first coming. He's the provider of the gospel. The Old Testament is filled with types and symbols that point to the coming Savior. Did you know Noah's Ark was a type or a picture of the coming Savior? Did you know that? Did you know that the manna in the wilderness that came down from heaven was a picture of that? Did you know that the tabernacle, the temple, the sacrificial system, the feast, every bit of that pointed to the fact that God was going to be consistent and how he would save mankind and how the gospel would be. So all things pointed ahead to the one who was to come. Listen, every little lamb that was killed as a sacrifice gave testimony to the one who was coming later, the Messiah, Jesus, the promised one. Next, Jesus was not only the promised one, but he was also the predicted one. And we kind of covered some of that just a moment, uh, just a moment ago. Look at Romans 1.3. Concerning a son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now, to fulfill prophecy, Jesus was born of King David. You know why? Because there was a covenant made with King David that this would happen. And God came through. Paul, in, his, in this letter, will go to great lengths using many Old Testament references to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Next, Jesus is also the powerful one. And if you look on your outline, the powerful one over the power of sin. This is where we're getting down to the nitty gritty. In Romans chapter 1, look at verse 4. It says, and declared. Now, now let me say this. The gospel or the reference to Jesus' provision. Okay, think about that. The gospel, or the reference to Jesus' provision, is still the subject as we move into verse 4. It's important for you to know that, okay? Now, and so when it says, and declared, it means that Jesus fleshed out the gospel. It means that he's the embodiment of the gospel. He fleshed it out. He lived it out. To be the son of God. Now, how did he declare this? How did he flesh it out? Here it is. With power according to the spirit of holiness. Now, a lot of you are looking at it thinking, so <laughs> that's a big deal. That's a big deal what that verse is saying. The phrase spirit of holiness suggests that Jesus lived a life of victory, listen, over the power of sin. Did you know that the letter would have to end there if, it, if that weren't the case? Did you know that? Everything would just have to stop there. What Paul was doing is he's basically giving us the credentials that Jesus had. Isn't it interesting he moved from giving his own credentials to the credentials of Jesus? And basically, you know what he's doing? He's setting up the whole argument that the rest of the letter is going to focus on him. And what he did in his provision and being the embodiment of the gospel. That's what this is telling us. Now, verse 3 again. 
Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, was born of the seed of David, listen, according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. This is a reference to the fact that we're talking about sin that needs to be forgiven. We're going to move from our guilt to his grace. And the whole idea that verse three is talking about Jesus as a man and verse four is talking about Jesus as what? As deity, as God. Both, listen, were required in God's plan to be the perfect sacrifice. Both were required. Next, Jesus also, the powerful one over the penalty of sin. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. How did all this come about? By the resurrection from the dead. Now, this is not on your outline, but think about this. Jesus rose from the dead for two reasons. Number one, to signify who he was. He was son of God. Okay? Number two, to signify his victory over death. Only deity could do that. He literally had victory over not only death, but the penalty of death. Which means if we believe in him and follow him, that we can have the victory over the penalty of death. And this is what Paul's going to be very clear to tell you. It won't come about by your righteousness, but how? Through his righteousness. Now, isn't it interesting that Paul spent most of his adult life up to the point he encountered Jesus, all of his adult life up to the point he encountered Jesus, trying to please God how? With his own righteousness. Do you know what blew Paul away about the whole idea about Jesus being the embodiment of the gospel? You know what blew him away? That he was able to, take, to receive Jesus and, his right, and Jesus' righteousness would have been placed on him. You know why that was a big deal to him? The poor guy spent all his life trying to be that righteousness. And every time he turned around, he found out that he may have gotten the, 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 the outward part right, but he tells us in another book that there was something inside him that was always wrong, even though he got the outer part right. You know, he told us that, right? And so he, he was so much like relief came to him. In verses 3 and 4, let me, let, me, let me close this part out. Paul is giving the credibility as to why he will focus the rest of the letter on Jesus. And the reason he is is because he's Christ, he's Lord, he's Son of God, his power, his holiness, his resurrection. He is the perfect sacrifice. And so there's your introduction there about Jesus and why he's going there. Next, it's mandate or the letter's mandate. To make Jesus known. First of all, I got to hurry. You got the accommodation for the mission. The accommodation for the mission. Now, in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, it says this Through him we have received grace and apostleship. Now, when it says through him, it's talking about his victory over sin and and death. Because you got to go back to the preceding verses to pick up with what he's talking about. Okay, so through him, through his victory over sin and death, we have received grace and apostleship. Now, grace comes before apostleship because salvation comes before service. Listen to this. Commitment to the truth comes before commitment to the task. And that's really what we're trying to see here. Next, we see the assignment of the mission. Look at Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 5 again. For obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Now, this mandate of making Jesus known has been given to all of us, every one of us, not just the apostles. We've all, in some term, in some way, have been called to be sent out, okay? Now, I like the fact that our church takes us seriously. How many of you earlier, that blessed you to see that video? 
it blessed you to hear what Kristen had to say. That, that our church was responsible for going out and being used by God. Now, all of us didn't go, did we? But we could send, but we could pray for them, and we all had a part in that. Not just in Zambia, not just in Nepal, but we, we need to be that here in Cleveland County. Not as the corporate body only, but us as individuals, listen, have been called to share the gospel. The gospel. Next, we see the authority of the mission. Romans chapter 1, look at verse 6. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Now, let me sum this up as it relates to the mandate. Our attitude must be obedient to the faith. Our assignment is to all nations. Our authority is found in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what he's telling us. Next, we see it's the letter's recipients. And, of course, it's the saints. Look at Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 7. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, who did that all include? First century Roman saints? Of course it did. Saints are all those in the church who have been saved. It literally means those who have been set apart by, for, and through God. Okay? But guess who else it includes? 21st century. First century all the way to 21st century. What Paul was writing to back there in the first century is addressed to us in the 21st century. It's amazing how God is the living, true word of God. So here's the application. The information in this letter, listen, is transforming. It proves that becoming acceptable to God is not through works and doing, but through grace and being. And we're going to see that clearly later. The letter is an invitation to come to God on his terms and to, to inform others of its contents. And so here's the question. Have you come to him on his terms? Did you know that the greatest path that's demonstrated by words that you'll find about how to come to Christ are right here in the book of Romans? You ever heard of the Roman road? It's literally a map to salvation. What are the verses? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5.8, when we were in our sins, Christ came to die for us in our sins. Uh, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And here's the invitation. Romans 10, 13, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord, what? Shall be saved. So I want to ask you, is that a reality in your life? Maybe it is. Well, maybe you, maybe you need to look at the next question. Have you shared the contents of the invitation with others? Do others know because of you? Would you stand to your feet, please? Father, we just come to you right now. and Lord, we know that uh, this letter that we're starting our journey through is what many people call the greatest letter ever written. And Lord, I happen to agree with that. I believe it's the most beautiful picture of how one 
is guilty, but yet one is not left in their guilt if they trust in you. That they can move to the point of grace, but not only in the point of grace, Lord, but we can have our sins forgiven, forgiveness of sin, redemption, and the fact that we're now your child, but then we can live for you. That our salvation is not just only, is not only the fact that we've been justified and that our sins have been forgiven and we're declared righteousness, declared righteous, but also that we can live for you and bring glory to your name. Father, I think so many times we lose sight of that. Lord, I just pray you be real to us. I pray for that person that may be here today that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior. They've never moved from their guilt to your grace. I pray today will be that day. Father, I pray for the one that may be here today and for the first time they've come to terms with the fact that they're also sent out. They're also one to, make the, uh, to be given the gospel message that the nations may know. Help us to feel the responsibility and the weight of that, that we will be motivated to share the gospel. Father, we pray you have your way in this invitation. In Jesus' name, amen. Myself and Gary will be here at the front. We just ask you to do what God's called you to do, would you? Whether it's right here at this altar, meaning business with him, or maybe you need someone to pray with you. We're here to do that. Just do what he's called you to do. Would you sing with us this morning?